How are you? If this is your first time, this might be the, the weirdest roll-up ever. Um, so for a few weeks, I'm just going to explain my life for a little bit, just so everyone knows. I usually wear two shoes, um, but a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, in fact, I re-ruptured my Achilles tendon that I ruptured initially in May. And so I'm kind of back to rehealing, and I, I sold my scooter. If, if you've been here before, you've seen me rolling around on a scooter, which is like the best thing ever compared to crutches. But I sold my scooters about like a week before I re-injured my Achilles again. So this past week, I got Scooter 2.0. And so if you remember, we named the first scooter. Actually, we didn't, but I thought it'd be a great idea. So we could actually have a new, you know, new naming for this one. Um, but just appreciate the prayers. I, I met with the, the surgeon who performed the surgery this past week and everything um, went very well with the surgery and my recovery looks good. And so I'm just praising God that I'm able to still function a little bit slower, a little bit more awkward at times. Um, but God, God has definitely been good. And so uh, appreciate appreciate the prayers and just wanted to give you a heads up in case you were in case you were wondering. Uh, we're in the, the middle of a series that we're actually going to be wrapping up next week called Beginning Again. You'll see there on the, the image uh, on the, the, the slide there. But uh, over this, the last few weeks, we've been talking about the importance of experiencing a fresh start in life and how change is something that a lot of times we want in different areas. We want to experience change. We want things to be different, but we may not know how that can happen. We may not know how to actually experience it. And so we've decided this series is something that I know for me I need to hear, and I'm sure for you I hope it's been a help to you, but just this idea of how do we actually experience change and how do we begin again and have a fresh start. Because life uh, can get stale, life can get hard, uh, life can seem like it's just repeating itself and we're just experiencing the same hard things over and over again. And that can happen in our relationships, that can happen as we encounter our past, uh, that can happen in lots of different areas areas of life. And so uh, we've been hoping just to look at what the Bible says, and more importantly, how does a relationship with God actually give us a chance to begin again? And so today we're talking about the area of work. And if you don't necessarily have kind of a place that you're working at, you still have major responsibilities. And in life, anytime we have major responsibilities, whether we're uh, responsibilities with the family, whether we're a student, whether we are at work, whatever it is that we have to do, we actually experience a lot of times an overwhelming sense of anxiety in the things that we have to take care of in life. Uh, we wake up and there's just a lot of things that we have to do in a limited amount of time. Uh, sometimes there's more things that we think we have on our plate that we can actually accomplish. And this leads us to being overwhelmed. This leads us to feeling like we just can't get ahead. And so this area of work is something that we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at an example in scripture of how to begin again despite Maybe that feeling of just being overwhelmed by the things that you have to take care of. I don't know about you, but have you ever felt like you have too much on your plate? Have you ever felt that? I know I have. Just you wake up and you think, I don't know how I'm going to get everything done. And if I can get everything done, I don't know if it's going to be good. I don't know if I'm going to be able to actually perform it to the level that I know I should. Well, that feeling is actually attributed to like a feeling of dread. And what's happening in our country is many people are working and they're working long hours and they're trying to make ends meet and it's hard to do. And companies are spending millions of dollars trying to figure out how do we help 
people experience kind of a newness in their work? How do we help students and employees and everyone kind of in our society experience kind of the opportunity to overcome the dread of our responsibilities? And there's been a lot of studies on how to spot burnout in people, especially companies. They're trying to figure out, okay, if we can spot burnout in employees, then we can help them, and hopefully that will lead them to being more productive, that will lead them to having a better life. Burnout is something that I think you've probably experienced, I know I've experienced, just that feeling of, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to continue. And so Business Insider recently did a survey of employees and all the things that they were experiencing, and they came up with like a list of these are the kind of the warning signs that you may be burnt out. And I'm going to read this list to you. And what I realized is like, I may be burnt out. I don't think I am, but a lot of this list I've, I've experienced. And so this is just to kind of put us on the common ground together. We probably felt some of these. So uh, here's some I'm just going to work through. You can see them up here. Number one, uh, setting your alarm too early to use the snooze button. They actually attributed like a lot of people that were burning out. They kind of went through their daily routine. And this was like a common thread. Like if they had to get up at 615, they're setting it up at like 530 just so they can like just keep pressing that snooze like I don't have to get up and I already see people looking at each other right now it's awesome especially if like their spouses because like the one spouse who just wants to set their alarm at one time and then the spouse that wants to snooze they're like see that you're burnt out it's you number one uh, number two being depleted after work just just so tired that they can't function they can't do anything number three uh, inconsistent sleep patterns just can't sleep really full night number four feeling liberated after a friday at work we're all burnt out who doesn't who after a friday is like i'm just so bummed it's the weekend i wish it was monday Uh, number five explaining your job with fine that's called a man most guys how was work it's fine number six Dreading every Monday. There you go. Number seven, fantasizing about quitting. I just like the fantasy. Like people like, so are you experiencing burnout? Well, every, every Monday I just picture myself parachuting into work with my resignation letter and just dropping it off on my boss's desk. You might be burnt out. That's you. Number eight, not wanting to explain your job to people. You know, you're so frustrated with it. You just don't even want to take time. Like I have a job. What do you do? It's, you know, it's, it's complicated. Number nine, Disregarding how you treat coworkers or customers. You just don't care. Number 10, constantly feeling overwhelmed. Number 11, rarely feeling like you're making progress. Number 12, being cynical. Number 13, frequently losing your temper. Number 14, over complaining. Number 15, noticing coworkers are hesitant around you. They just don't even ask you how you're doing anymore. They already know. Just don't, don't go in. Don't go into their office. So, they spend a lot of money to, to figure this out. We probably know this ourselves, like when this starts to come, we, we know this. But for a lot of us, this can actually be a re- reality of how life feels. And this really does summarize a life of just feeling dread. And so I want to talk a little bit about what dread is. Dread, uh, is there's two basic kinds. And this will kind of get us on the same page. One, it's a striking fear that I'm going to fight or I'm going into a fight that I can't win. Like life is a battle, and the things that you have, you just feel like there's no way I can get through this. 
There's no way that I'm going to be able to accomplish what I need to. I'm going into a battle, I'm going into a fight, and I can't win. Usually that comes in the thing of there's just so many things you have to do, you don't even know how to do it. And so you just, kind of like that, those 15, you just, there's, there's no use. I, I can't accomplish. The second part of dread that you'll see there on the screen is a fear that I'm going to spend my life on the meaningless. That actually is a common, common experience people have. As they experience work, and as they give their life to trying to accomplish something, there's a fear in the back of our minds that what if what I'm doing actually doesn't matter? What if what I'm doing isn't going to actually make a difference? And these two types of dread, feeling like you can't push through a battle that you're in and feeling like maybe it's going to be meaningless, that actually really slows down and takes away from the kind of life that God wants to give us. And so I want to spend the rest of the time doing is looking at a character in the Old Testament who really had every right to be overwhelmed by dread, but, in, but instead kind of set a template for us for how do you respond to when things are overwhelming? How do you begin again if you failed at work? How do you begin again if you're stressed out at work? How do you begin again if you're just anxious? It feels meaningless. It feels like you're just beating your head against the wall. And it's the character of, of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a book in the Old Testament, and he's actually a man in the Old Testament as well. And the book is based on um, his life and an experience he had. And I just want to walk through that. But Nehemiah, he is the perfect example of how to keep starting over in the face of dread. And so I want to walk through why that is. And so I'm going to kind of give you a lot of background information, and then we're going to talk specifically about some scriptures. But this background is just to get you on kind of the same kind of page as to what, what's going on in the time of Nehemiah. So at the time of Nehemiah, the Israelites, the Jews, are, are in exile at the hands of the Babylonians. So they're actually not living in Jerusalem, the, the land that God had given them. They're in exile, and they're really captive. They, they're, not, they're not free. Uh, they're not able to live at their home. But what begins to happen over a period of time after the, the Babylonian rule and over captivity, the exiles begin to be able to return home. But while they were in exile, the Babylonians just ravaged their land. The Israelites' land, Jerusalem and Judah, it was just dismal. It was torn. It was burned. It was broken down. And so you have a group of people in the time of Nehemiah that are able to go home. But as they get home, they realize that this is not the home that they left. So the one thing that they were excited about was to be able to return to the place that was theirs. The place where they could be back with their families, be back with their, their friends, be in their community. And as they got there, there was nothing but rubble and fire and destruction. So you can imagine the time of Nehemiah is a high-stress, highly volatile time for the people of Israel. Their land is, is destroyed. During this time, Nehemiah is a man that is an Israelite. But he was in exile, and he actually had some influence in Persia, which is about 700 miles away. You guys with me so far? This is like a little history lesson, Okay. So he was in Persia, 700 miles away from Jerusalem. As he was in exile in Persia, a lot of what you find in the Old Testament is people who were maybe captives, but they actually gain influence because of their faith. And God puts them in situations where they begin to have influence with the people of power of the foreign land. The same is true for Nehemiah, as it was with Moses, as it was with Daniel. He had some power, and he was the cupbearer to the Persian king. Now, a cupbearer is like the main assistant 
You're his right-hand man. So to the king of Persia, he was his cupbearer. It also means like the cup that could be poisoned, you have to drink. That makes you very important. Because you're the one that's ensuring that this king's not going to get poisoned. So Nehemiah had a whole lot of influence and he had the king's ear. So you have Nehemiah who's an Israelite that's not living in his land. But he knows that people are returning home and he longs to hear about them. He longs to find out about how their home is doing. But he fears what most of the Israelites did at the time. And that is, if our land was left in the hands of our enemy, are they going to take care of it? Are they going to actually leave it to us? So when we return, it's going to be something worth returning to. And so everyone kind of feared the worst. And Nehemiah was no different. And so Nehemiah, Nehemiah begins to get burdened. And he begins to try to get word of what is happening to the land that everyone's returning to. And I'm going to pick up the story in Nehemiah 1, the second half of verse 2. And it says this. And I asked them, this is Nehemiah talking. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, so the people who were returning, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. So I want to know about the people. I want to know about the city in which we all live. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So everything that Nehemiah had feared and everyone of the Israelites that feared and everyone that's returning home, as they're going closer and closer and they're seeing the smoke and they're seeing the rubble, they know their greatest fears have come to fruition. Their land is, is destroyed. So Nehemiah begins to try to figure out, what, what do I do? And so I just want to stop there because Nehemiah is in really a, a tough position because he's Jewish, but he really has it good right now because he has a great position. It's out of really any war zone that he's got to be afraid of, and he has influence and he has power. But what you find is his heart, though, is with his people. And he cares for them. He cares for the land that God had given them. And so he begins to really wrestle. And at this point, you can imagine, he really feels like his hand is tied. He feels like, what could I do? I'm here. I'm 700 miles away. All the people are returning, and I'm, I'm here. And so he, he was greatly burdened. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of go through all the things that he must have been experiencing. Lots of emotions, a lot of stress, a lot of just unknown feeling like, what, what do I do? How can I help? And what he begins to do is he lays out really the right response to how you deal with things that are overwhelming, how you deal with dread, which you feel like there's nothing I can do, my, my hands are tied. And so I want to walk through this because Nehemiah is a great example for us. And it begins with the very crucial first step that Nehemiah did. After he got the news, he asked God for help. So if you're in a tough spot and if I'm in a tough spot and we feel overwhelmed and we feel like we're in that kind of area of just feeling dread, the first thing we must do is we have to actually bring God into what we're experiencing. We have to ask him for help. And that's what Nehemiah did. He says this in Nehemiah 1.4. You'll see it on the screen. It says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So he was greatly troubled to the point where he's, he's not going to eat. And he's overwhelmed by emotion. He's mourning. He's distraught. But he turned to God and for days, not an hour, not 15 minutes, for days, he continued fasting and praying before God of heaven. So he, he turned to God. He realized there was nothing he could do except invite God into what he was experiencing. And that is, just in my own experience, and I know many of you have experienced the same thing. When you get to the point where you can't face what you're facing, or you're not sure how to move forward, 
The only thing you can do at times is actually invite God in to the things that we experience. It's like you have one choice. Who do I rely on? Is it myself or do I turn to someone who sees everything and has the power to help? And that's what, that's what Nehemiah did. When I re-injured my Achilles, I'm going to just let you into my own kind of example of dread. I was on the beach and I, I re-injured it. And I'm pretty sure I re-injured it. And the first thing I felt was just like, I think I re-injured my Achilles. But I'm not sure. I'm just going to sit here a while. And maybe like, this is a dream. And I'm going to wake up. Usually like when you're on the beach, like that, you want that dream to stay. I, I was like, let this dream be over. And as I sat there, I realized like, the reality is done. Like, there's nothing I can do. And my kids are around, and my, my wife was there, and we're all just like, so what do we do? And I, I just, I didn't know. Like, I couldn't really walk, and I was just overwhelmed by these thoughts of I'm going to have to do this all over again. And I just got better, and how is this going to work? And I just, I was very overwhelmed. I was very stressful, and I was kind of in despair, and just this thing. that's nothing compared to what Nehemiah was facing, but I felt that dread, just this, what, what's going to happen? How is this going to work? And then my wife in the moment really helped me with something. And she said, let's pray. And I was sitting there. And I was like, that's right. Let's pray. That's all we can do. And we prayed right there. And in that moment, those feelings of despair and dread really just were lifted a little bit. It's a sense in which God is in control. He's there. He provides the help in the moment. This is the same thing in my experience. He's I don't know what I can do. And so he asked God for help. He invited him in. So instead of running scenarios of all the things that we could do or should do, first thing he did is let's just, let's pray. Let's ask God. Later, as soon as he kind of got this, through this period of, of praying and asking God for help, he realized that he really needed to t- try to figure out what to do. And he was I- interacting with the king, and the king had never seen Nehemiah just distraught. And he notices, and he asks Nehemiah, what's wrong? And why do you seem so down? And why do you seem so just dread-stricken? And he explained what had happened. And what you find is, is that because he had prayed to God, and he had asked God for help, God moved the heart of the king of Persia and actually released Nehemiah to be able to go and check out what was happening. If you can imagine... Your highest, assist, your highest assistant who helps you with so much, who's there whenever you need him, you allow him to go, which makes it harder on you, the king, but you allow him to go because you know he really in his heart wants to be there. So it's just an amazing story of just he brought God into the equation and God begins to move. And that leads to the second thing that Nehemiah does. As he faced the dread, he invited God in, he asked him for help, and then he assessed the mess. He decided, I need to go. To Jerusalem, I need to find out what is actually happening. And so he set on the journey to head to where all the people are going. And you find that in Nehemiah 2.11. He says, so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. And then Nehemiah 2.15. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. So what Nehemiah did is he set out and he began to inspect the wall. And he did so at night because... He really didn't want this to be a big ordeal. He just wanted to have time to focus and to really go to every part of the city and find out what had been destroyed. And in this time in Jerusalem, there are great walls. And the walls are part of the fortification because all the people around are enemies of the Israelites. 
And so the walls of Jerusalem are crucial to keeping the people safe. And so he's going around. He's looking at the walls. He's looking at the destruction. Where are the weak points? Where are the strong points? Is there anything left that's worth saving? And what is this, this mess going to look like? And so something I appreciate about Nehemiah's example is that it actually led to action. Oftentimes, um, we may think to bring God in and we kind of get stuck there like, God, just help me. But sometimes you actually have to know what, what is the situation you find yourself? What is it that you actually have to deal with? And you have to begin to think, what am I overwhelmed by? What am I anxious about? What is on my plate that just seems like I can't take care of? And so all of us have to kind of look, what's going on in my work life right now that's causing me to be so stressed out? What's going on right now in my family life that's causing me to be overwhelmed? What's going on right now in ministry where I just feel like I can't get ahead and I can't help the people I want to help? You have to begin to kind of look. Now, people aren't necessarily the mess, but there's just the sense of all the things that can go wrong. We sometimes just have to look and see where are we and what is really going on. And it's not you just pray and then you assess the mess and you stop praying. It's really this continual. As you continue to assess the mess, you have to continue to bring God in. This is, what I'm, this is what I'm facing. This is what I'm experiencing. And then the third thing, once Nehemiah invited God in and once he assessed the mess and he began to inspect, he actually had to get started. And Nehemiah's role was he was going to rebuild the city. This city needed to be refortified. It needed to be a place where the Israelites who were returning could actually have a place to live. The community needed to rebuild. This was the city of God that he had given them. And so it was vital for the existence and the well-being of the people of Israel to return the city back to a place where people could actually live there. And so he, he got started. Now, Nehemiah 2, 17 through 18, these two verses have a lot just packed in them. Then I said to them, he's talking to the people, because as he's assessing, and as he's deciding what needs to be done, everyone's kind of looking at Nehemiah. Like, what, what are you doing, Nehemiah? Like, you know, you, you got, you're the cupbearer. You're in Persia. Like, what are you doing here in the rubble with us? And they begin to see, like, okay, I think Nehemiah's on a mission. Like God's put him on this mission to help rebuild. And so he begins to gather people, and people are interested, like, Nehemiah, what's going on? You can imagine, as he's kind of going around, people just following him. So, Nehemiah, what, what are you doing? What are we doing? What, what, how are we going to do this? And and asking him, finally he gets to the point where after he's assessed the mess, he begins to talk to the people. And this is what he says. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? See, just, you know, let's just state the obvious. We're really messed up. That's what he's saying. We're just really messed up. You see the trouble we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So it's amazing in this point of history how it went from complete ruin and complete destruction and despair to a gathering of people who decide, let let us rebuild together. And Nehemiah said, hey, God has given me his power. The king of Persia has released me. That's not just for nothing. We have something to do. If you could imagine, like, sometimes when you read this, it just is kind of words on the page, but could you imagine? The place is in ruin. The smoke is still just probably rising. 
There may be fires that still need to be put out. And everyone's just trying to kind of gauge, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And they're just probably frozen. But God uses Nehemiah to give them a vision. We have to do more than just be overwhelmed. We have to do more than just feel sorry for ourselves. Let's get started. And so could you imagine? He's, he's explaining, God is with us. Let's do it. And there's just this sense that as I read this, I get this kind of, this thing of just all these people are like, let's do this. You know, but all, you know, when you read it, you're like, oh yeah, they were kind of excited. But could you imagine your place is in ruin and you get this vision that God wants you to rebuild. And he's going to give you everything you need to rebuild. And he's even give you a man that's going to lead the charge in rebuilding. And he asks, let's rebuild. Do you think they just kind of like, yeah, let's rebuild. What do you think they did? I imagine they were completely fired up. You know, as they're just looking at ruin, like, let's, let's do this. And there was just so much great strength. And then the end of that is so interesting because it says, so they strengthened their hands for the good work. I just, I just kind of like to know, like, at that moment, let's rebuild. Everyone's like, let's rebuild. Let's start throwing bricks to build calluses on our hands. You know, like, what happened? Like, they strengthened their hands. I mean, I don't think they had those little squeeze things, you know, like, but like, who knows what they were doing, but they had to strengthen their hands. Like, you know what? I've been in exile a long time and good news is I've been working and I got calluses. And so everyone's like, I got calluses too. And they're just like looking at, well, I got strong, well, I got strong hands too. And they're just kind of getting pumped up. It's like getting game time. They're like, let's do this. They strengthened their hands for the work. But that phrase is actually something that God does for us here now too. As we try to rebuild in our responsibilities and rebuild in our work and try to gain the progress and momentum that God wants us to have and to do well and to work hard and to cause something to happen out of nothing, we strengthen our hands as well. And that happens in a few ways. When we spend time with God and when we pray, we strengthen our hands for the work. That's us going back to the power of where the strength comes. We go back to the source. And it strengthens our hand for the work. It strengthens us to face what we have to face. Another thing, how our hands get strengthened is by others. Other people who set an example of working hard and not crushed and not being crushed by whatever things they have on their plate. I don't know about you, but when I see people who work hard and they push through, even through the hard things, it gives me encouragement. It challenges me. Just like they have done, I can do that too. And God uses each other to help us keep going. And the other thing that strengthens our hands is, is just you have to get started, which is the whole point. The only way to get the calluses is to do the work. And so you have to pick up the bricks. You have to pick up the pieces. You have to begin to put it together. And that's what Nehemiah did. So he invited God in. He assessed the mess. And then he got started. It wasn't in theory. It wasn't ideas. It actually translated into let's rebuild. And so they strengthened their hands. And then the, what you find throughout the rest of the story of the book of Nehemiah is this just pushing through no matter what the challenges were that they faced. So the process didn't really just stop. Once they decided to rebuild, it wasn't like let's rebuild, they were all fired up, let's pick up bricks, and then it just all worked smoothly. No, the rebuilding was really the beginning of a lot of hard, hard work. And not only hard work, just hard labor and the heat 
in bad circumstances. But also there were people, the neighboring lands, that were seeing them rebuild. And these are the enemies. And they're thinking like, you guys can't rebuild. We've destroyed it. If you rebuild, we're going to destroy it again. And so throughout the book of Nehemiah, as they're rebuilding, the enemies keep coming against them. And coming against them, wanting them to fail. But Nehemiah decides, if God's on our side, and this is the mission he wants us to do, and this is what he wants us to take care of, this is the responsibility he's given us, then we have to push through the challenges. And in Nehemiah 4, as the story goes on, you find some of his perspective. And this is verse 10 and 11. It says, In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. So they're basically telling, all the people are saying that this isn't going to work. We're not going to be able to rebuild. We may be able to make progress, but overall, this is going to be a failure. And so there's this just kind of this overwhelming, discouraging news happening. Like, you guys aren't going to be able to do it. There's too much rubble. You ever felt like that? The things you face? It's like right when you take care of something, you look and something else is broken. And then right when you take care of that, another thing. It's like you get a relationship right and then another relationship gets messed up. You finally get kind of your finances straightened out and then something else happens and it kind of puts them in disarray. That's what he's, they're experiencing, the rubble. When you deal with the rubble, you find there's just more rubble. It's overwhelming. So the people are saying, there's too much rubble. This burden is too heavy for us to carry. And then they go on, by ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Now at this point, Nehemiah could have said, hey guys, remember like, when you were all fired up when I said we were going to rebuild and you like screamed and you're comparing calluses on your hands. What happened? They're kind of backing out like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work anymore. So tremendously discouraging. And then in verse 11, just to kind of put the icing on the cake. And our enemy said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. OK, so everyone thinks this isn't going to work. The people that are working think it's too much. There's too much rubble. And then even our enemies say, sure, keep rebuilding. We'll just come and keep destroying it. Do you think Nehemiah faced dread there? This sounds like the worst work environment ever. Like there is no human resource, but could you imagine? Yeah, they're being threatened. People want to take their life and everyone on the team wants to quit. And they're working with just a bunch of rubble. So go ahead and have fun with that. Tremendous amount of dread. Nehemiah 4.14. This is Nehemiah's response. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people. So just in case we didn't know, he's saying, everyone's been saying a lot of things. And Nehemiah decides, I just need to address it. I just need to give everyone the perspective that God wants us to have. It says this, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So do not be afraid. Remember the Lord and fight. Those are great words. No matter what we're facing, if we can remember that God is on our side, when we call to him, he hears us. If we can remember that he's there. We get a tremendous amount of courage. And courage is what we need to fight dread. Courage is what 
allows us in the midst of dread, courage from God himself, allows us to push through the feeling that we can't move forward. The feeling that what we're doing is meaningless. It's what Nehemiah is talking about. It takes great courage. I want to close out with a video of someone in our Diamond Bar campus that has experienced just having to push through dread in, in his work. And his name is Joel Berry. And Joel is a filmmaker. He's an actor. And you want to talk about dread, talk to somebody who's trying to make it in the film business. It's not, it's not easy. And it's very difficult. And he's been at it a long time. And it's a very slow process. But we, we asked uh, Joel to kind of just share what are some perspective that, that he's gotten in the midst of this overwhelming dread and how has God helped him? And so Randy, who is our senior pastor of Church in the Valley, he's interviewing Joel. And I just want to close out with this because what you find is Nehemiah and all his experiences actually does translate to what we experience today. And so I just want to share this with you. And then as this is playing, the band can come up and then we'll receive our offering. And if you haven't finished your connection card yet, uh, go ahead and, and, and finish that. Let's watch this together. Hello, we're here at my office with Joel Berry. And Joel is a longtime member of Church in the Valley. He's a host on Sunday mornings sometimes, so you may recognize him. Uh, Joel's an actor in independent films and commercials. He also has a production company that is named Sweet Tea Films. Really good name. Uh, makes me thirsty. But also, he uh, does video in, in the Sweet Tea Films. They do video for companies and other creative efforts. And, and right now, I know your latest project, Joel, is a short film called Worth the Wait that you intend to enter into some festivals. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Yeah, we just finished it. And festivals are a good way to kind of jump to the next step in your career. So Great, great. So this is an important project. It's something you just launched out to do. Mm-hmm. And I know there's several steps along the way to creating a film like that. What, what's involved in doing a short film like Worth, worth the Wait? Well, it's, uh, it starts with an idea, then you, you write the script, and then get feedback on the script. And then, then I, the second thing I did was start reaching out to actors, so a couple actors that I really respected and, and that I thought would be perfect. I thought I might as well ask them first, and they said yes. Then you get into funding getting the budget together and your crew together and your locations together and then your equipment together and you go shoot a movie. Yeah. And food. People eat. Food, yes. That makes good. That, that helps. Good idea. Yeah. Did you have sweet tea by We did. We did. Okay, good. Yes. Just checking. Yeah. Um, what about doing this project? Th- this can be a very important thing and entering it into a festival and getting some attention that way. Mm-hmm. Um, what about this project created dread or fear in you? Well, there's a, a several probably moments of dread. One is just um, failing to write a good story or failing to um, produce it correctly and then failing to raise the budget and get money together to help doing it. So all of the, And even now, as we get into post-production, you can really mess up a film editing it incorrectly. So <laughs> kind of every season of the film, there's an opportunity to, to dread. Yeah, I, I would imagine. Uh, was there anything about working in the present on this film, was there anything about the past that sort of ramped up the fear and dread, the things that you weren't looking forward to? Yeah, well, I've I've worked on productions before, and it's kind of like 
I guess a lot of things in life, what can go wrong will go wrong. So you just start thinking, oh, this could happen or that could happen. And some of those things happened, you know, where you just hit technical snags or just personnel snags. If, uh, we had a couple of guys that had family emergencies, and you can't plan for those, and you don't expect them to stick around a movie set when they have to handle things that are more important. So uh, you, you definitely start thinking, okay, all of these things could happen. But also, going through those things in the past, you see that, there's ways around them too. Right, so. right. That's good. So, how, how did God walk with you through this time to help you have what you needed to accomplish this goal? Mm-hmm. What were some things that He provided, and how did He work? Uh, one of the main things was friends and family, uh, and people, other believers in church that were praying. Um, one one morning, something came up, another snag in pre-production. And I was getting really anxious about it. I'm like, oh. And the Lord reminded me when I was praying. One is that look at all the pieces I've brought already in place for this film. And two, he reminded me to check my app on my phone called PrayBuzz, which it, it it shows me how many people have been praying for my film. It was over 120-something. And he reminded me, other people are bringing this project to my attention yeah. and praying for this. And you've got to trust that I'm going to work through this. And just seeing the amount of people that were joining me in prayer was encouraging. And yeah. then later that day, what I was worried about um, was taken care of. So Right. That's great. That was good, well, too. Yes. That's a good, good reminder that God gives us what we need in the moment. Right. Not ahead of time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we got what we needed. That's right. Well, thanks for sharing with us, Joel. Mm-hmm. Really appreciate it. May God bless your efforts as you continue to work on the film with the, the editing and all that goes into that. All thanks. right. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you.